Well, my name is Whitney with Indigo Yoga, and I'm here with Gabriel Azulay. Um, he's a teacher of mine, a dear friend, and a Black yogi who has spent quite a, quite a bit of time in America. And this month, as we are particularly highlighting Black voices, um, Gabe has agreed to come and share some of his experiences with us. Um, so Gabe, uh, why don't you, if you don't mind, just share, us, share with us a little bit about your story, um, where you come from, your your roots, and how you uh, how you found yoga. Totally, no thanks. So, so with Whitney, really cool to be on your podcast and kind of have a chance to kind of share this. I do want to acknowledge right from the start how awesome it is that you at Indigo is are choosing to make um, something that I've not yet seen in the yoga world, which is a nice focus on the minority community. You know, and those of you who are watching, if you can't see me, if you're listening to the podcast, you can't see the fact that my skin visually looks white. And I remember when I first moved to America and I would tell people that I'm black and I would then suddenly have to prove it. And then I would have to go to my wallet and pull out the picture of my mother who is a black woman and my grandfather was a black man from Jamaica growing up in Israel. So I was born and raised in Jerusalem. And I was born to a mother who is black and her mother is a Holocaust survivor from Austria. And her father is a black man from Jamaica who moved to New York City when he was younger. And, you know, and so here is my mom who looks black, who grew up in New York City, um, who also then got her degrees in South African studies which meant that as a young boy in my house, the subject of racial awareness was hugely there. Now, when you live in Israel, that doesn't play so much of a role in terms of black and white. However, my father is from Morocco. He's the first generation to be born in Israel, but his parents are from Fez, Morocco. So those who are not familiar with Jewish issues, in the Jewish tradition, we have two types of, there's more, but the general one, there is Jews from North Africa or from Africa countries, and then Jews from Europe and those Western sides, we can say. And in Hebrew, we call them Ashkenazi and Sephardi. Those from Europe are known as Ashkenazi. Those from the African areas are known as Sephardi. And so in Israel, there is a racial tension around those two subject groups. So for instance, my father and his parents, when he came, when they moved to Israel in the 1950s, you know, they were put into different areas compared to when you saw Jews coming from Russia later on, let alone when you saw the Jews coming from Ethiopia. So we're not going to go into too many racial issues there, but just the idea there that the tone of my skin doesn't reflect the background that I come from. And my background is I grew up in a house that my mother made sure that we understood that if I was born in 1800s, I would be a slave. Just because I look white, I, my mom is black, and so I would be considered black, and especially in the terms of the United States of America. So in Israel, that was a very important element that my mother made sure that we were raised with. And then when I moved to America, I discovered that, wow, there's racial issues on both sides. You know, I got to prove to the black community that I'm black. I got to deal with the white community that thinks other issues about black people. 
And when, and so I, I remember just allowing myself to kind of rise above it in some ways. It's in mine. I know my background. I know where I come from, but I'm not going to worry anymore. I'm, when my mother was like, oh, how come you don't have black friends? I was like, mom, you know what? That's your issue. That's not really my issue. I know black people in school and they have their own desires of whether they want to be close friends to mine or not. It's not that I'm choosing one direction or another. And so I moved to America when I was 17. And when I was 19 is when I ended up walking into a library just because I wanted to know where an author got his ideas for a book. So I read a book by a man named Tom Robbins. Some of you may be familiar with this American author. Some of you may not. He's a very eccentric type of author. His books are... Interestingly, interestingly bizarre and the use, the use of the American English language is extremely powerful. So when I read his books, they really touched me. In fact, his book, Jitterbug Perfume, is the reason I ended up on the yoga path. Here was a book that outside of the storyline of, of Pan, the God, and how the destruction of that culture was was preceded with the direction of Christianity and Tom's way of playing with those ideas. Outside of that side of the story, outside of the love story that exists there, there is a theme in Jitterbug Perfume about life quality and how one can really achieve a different kind of a longevity in life. So that's a huge part in that book where one doesn't have to live a limited number of years in their body. And so one of the characters, the main character, King Alabar, is on a search on what does it mean? Why do I have to die, quote unquote? And in that search, he experiences a variety of things. And at the end of the book, there is a suggestion of some direction of ideas. And throughout the whole book, I could feel that, again, some of his ideas I was already familiar with. That we grew up in Israel, um, you recognize that Jesus was a Jew. Um, the direction that he developed in terms of Christianity was developed later, not during his life. He wasn't trying to create a new religion. And so these theme ideas that Tom was playing with, I was already familiar with. But these other themes, that there is a knowledge that existed in that world before Christ, that the depth of understanding on human potential um, that ex can express itself in longevity, I found shocking. For me, I didn't really think that the direction of the world prior to monotheism with Judaism had a complex philosophical and spiritual, let alone um, human health and longevity intelligence. You know, the, the way it's prescribed in Israel when you grow up, the way it's presented in his, history books, the pagan religions are pagan. These are people that were kind of like uh, way too simple and they just kind of like need to believe in various gods because of their simplistic mindset. And so the idea that there was a complex experience of life wasn't available for me, to be honest. 
Um, even when I grew up in Israel, the idea that India is rich in its culture was actually downplayed. When my cousins who went to India after their army, and in fact in Israel, the, especially, I mean, especially 20 years ago and 30 years ago, there was this huge, you, you come out of the army, you, in Israel there's a mandatory army service for three years. So you come out of that army and kids go to India. And, and this idea that they go to India to lose themselves, to do drugs, to do parties, to, and, or to, or this, so that's one direction of the idea of India. The other direction is that these children or these kids coming out of the army go to India to find a different meaning. So I grew up in a house where my father has six other brothers and sisters. So there's a large family side on my father's side. Most of, so some of my cousins are my age, some of them are younger and some of them are older. So I remember it. 13 and 14 as I'm sitting around with my family and we'll come to we'll come in a second about my questions about spirituality mm-hmm. but at this point regardless of my own questions I'm just sitting around and sometimes I would hear the conversations of the adults of the parents talking about their kids going to India in search of a more spiritual path and then it was like well why did you have to go all the way to India when you can just go to the more religious section in Jerusalem to the Hasidic, the Jews that spend their time studying the Torah more closely. And so you can go there and experience a deeper sense of spirituality. And so those two themes um, played uh, a part in my evolution until I ended up with Jitterbug Refume, meaning I had an idea about pagan ideas that were simplistic and just um, not as intricate and as developed as the Judaic ideas. And again, reminding ourselves that Christianity comes from Judaism. So I'm not putting it down, but the complexity that Christianity may have brought to the world with its science and with its um, society, we can't deny it. So. So here's one mention, and then India with, oh, wow, they're just doing drugs, and they're just losing themselves, and people go over there to experience spirituality, where you can experience the spirituality within Judaism, and then byproduct with Christianity and Muslim. That's really interesting. While we're here, um, part of the problem with yoga culture in the West is that dilution of the rich cultural history and the complexity of the actual philosophy of yoga, where it came from, and that it's more than just postures. And um, I, I remember also growing up in a religious home and not necessarily my family, but there was a generalized viewpoint of yoga as almost like witchcraft. Um, some people would say it was evil that you're, uh, and um and I feel that it comes from a lack of lack of understanding that's almost a conscious lack of understanding. And it seems to be perpetuated in many um, like yoga studios and more the more popular classes that are going on today as we continue to dilute these teachings. What do you feel about that? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I was I was playing with that background just so that we could get to this subject matter, you know. Um, because again, I this is this is I moved to America in 1991, so this is this again ancient time almost, 
with the modern phones, most of us idea of time is extremely um, skewed. You know, we've had an iPhone for barely 10 years now. And yet the average adult even, let alone children, let alone most of the yoga community, to think of a time period when there was no Google and there was no internet seems like the dark ages. <laughs> and yet it was not even 20 years ago. You know, the internet is in 2000. So, but nonetheless, 1991, when I moved to America, um, I don't have this. I find, I end up with Jitterbar Perfume in 1995. That book is in my hand. And it was the first time since I'm a young child when I read Socrates, and I'll come to that in a second, but it's the first time since that time when I read Socrates at the age of 10, that my interest about something that I didn't understand and had an image that obviously was not correct is the first time is triggered again. In Israel, the idea of religion, the idea of, of social justice is you got to live with it. It's, it's in your, it's, it's in your day-to-day -day life between issues with Arabs and Palestinians, between peace issues. I grew up in a house with black, with black subject. So I grew up as a child that wants to work towards peace. So I worked with children and kind of created an environment where young Israeli kids would meet Palestinian kids. I would travel to Italy with a Palestinian group because we couldn't meet in Israel at the time because Palestine, the Palestinian people did not recognize Israel people. So politically, we couldn't have those meetings together in Israel. So as a boy, I'm very active in terms of these subject matters. At the age of 10, I read Socrates and Plato as a children type of a book. And I'm found, and it was extremely powerful, Socrates' element of questioning. So there is the famous, those of you not familiar with it, so hopefully that triggers you to kind of look at it. But Socrates is walking through the courthouse one day and a man that he knows walks out and he asks him, well, why were you there? And the man says, well, you know, I was on trial because I said that um, something about the gods and now I'm on trial on whether or not what I said about the gods is right or not. And then Socrates goes, well, who made the laws? Who makes these laws? Are these laws made by the gods? And then if they were made by gods, supposedly, then how did they come up with these ideas of laws? Are they just random? I just randomly chose that this is good and this is bad. And if it wasn't randomly chosen, then who was it that didn't randomly choose it? Now, Socrates isn't giving an answer. He's just asking this question that for me at the age of 10 was also powerful. It's like in Judaism, you just have to accept these 10 commandments. Unlike Christianity, where if you don't believe in Christ, you can't be a Christian. Judaism you know, you're born to it. So whether you want to be Jewish or not, the Holocaust showed us, same as whether I look white or I look black, thank God it's 2000, but if I was in the 1800s, they don't care what I look like. Your mom's black, you're black, you're slave. The Holocaust showed us that they don't really care. You don't believe in Judaism, you don't think you're a Jew, but I just looked at your lineage and your mother's mother was Jewish, you're Jewish. So Judaism and being black has nothing to do with what you believe. They have to do with your ancestry, whether you like it or not. And so in Israel, especially in Israel, it's like, well, you don't want to be a Jew. Well, uh, that's tough. What do you mean you don't want to be a Jew? You're Jewish anyway. 
The holidays are Jewish. There's not other holidays. Not like America was like, oh, I'll celebrate Christmas and I'll celebrate Hanukkah and I'll celebrate Kwanzaa. In Israel, there's Hanukkah. You go to school and you're going to study the Torah in some fashions. You're going to study history of Jew- Israel in that fashion. As you dr- it doesn't matter where town you live in, you're going to be faced with artifacts that are from 2,000, 3,000 years ago from the fact that Jewish or Hebrew people lived here. And the religion and the faith that they had was around Yahweh. And so you can't avoid it. Regardless of what you want to tell yourself, I don't. And I remember at 10, my grandmother reminding me that I told her I don't believe in God. And yes, that question by Socrates was like, oh, exactly. Who decided these 10 commandments, you know? If God decided it, there's no God. And so I remember breaking my grandmother's heart. She always also reminded me how I broke her heart with that statement that I don't believe in God. But you don't, there's not that side of thinking I'm not Jewish doesn't exist in Israel because it's a Jewish country. But the questioning mind as a child would then stay with me. And let alone that, I have to be a questioning mind to ask the question of why is there problems between Jews and Arabs? Why is there peace? Why is there problems between Sephardic and Ashkenazis? Why is it that if your last name is not from the Western side, then you might be subjected to not being accepted to certain universities, not getting a certain job, just because of your last name, same as your skin color. So I'm aware that these inequalities are human inequalities, have nothing to do with religious inequalities. And so I grew up and I have these questions. And when I moved to America in 1991, it's actually an amazing experience because you know what, in America, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's like, you don't want to be Jewish, you don't have to be Jewish, you know, it's like, I mean, the fact that the holidays are there, it's like, well, it's thanks for my day off. You know, it's like, I don't have to be subjected to the TV shows, the general culture around these holidays and these stories that belong to the Jewish tradition. Now there's a tons of stories and you don't have to turn on the TV. And so I remember that those two years, my senior year in high school, my freshman year in college were somewhat freer than this constant thinking about these issues that I was facing when I was younger. Especially when I realized that, you know what, black issues, you know, you black people can have the same issues as white people. Cause look, you don't think I'm black. So now I got to prove to you that I'm black. So then it's like, that's the same kind of racism I'm feeling with my mom at home. And so once again, it wasn't about trying to fix it. It was more about like, great, you know what? I'm just going to enjoy my life. I'm just going to, and then I don't have to think about these ideas anymore and fantastic. Who cares? Then I end up with jitterbug perfume. And then it was like a slap in the face where it was like, regardless of religious ideas, regardless of racial issues, here's a man, here's a book that as much as it's a fictional book, I realized that something in this book is true. And then I realized that truth, truth, these are not words I have because I've been doing yoga forever, but truth is just true. Some things are just true, and then they're true. A man named Osho said it best, and he puts it in this way. If you can see, if you have eyes, and you can actually see, and you see the sunlight, then it doesn't matter what anyone else wants to say about the sunlight. 
you know what light is. But if you're blind and you've never seen light, then how will you ever know light? And it doesn't matter what anyone will say about it because there's no way for you to see it. And so that element is that about truth, like some things are true. And when you realize that truth, like you may not have words for it, but it's true. Like there's light. What do you want me to say more about it? And if you can't see light, then there's nothing to be said about it. You will never know the light. Today, I will apply it to the word God because as much as when I was 10, I said, I don't know God, but today I know God. I've had these moments where God has revealed. And then I realized it's just a word and the word is confusing to many people. But at that time, when I read, when I read Tom Robbins' Yerba Perfume, I realized that there's a sense of truth in his book that overrides anything that I had read before. Overrides even Socrates with his questions. And now I want to know, where did he get that truth from? And I realized that there was a place he got those idea of truth that are emanating from his book, like a certain light that kind of rises from his book. And I was like, I want to know where you found that light. And all I have is the word India and the word meditation. And it's 1993, 94, and I have to go to the, my library at my college and so there's no Google and there is no internet. And the only way you're going to find information is by walking to the computer library and typing keywords. And then the computer will spit out a list of titles of books. Now you don't write the name of the book title. You write the letters and numbers belonging to that book title. And then you climb around the steps of the library looking for these connecting numbers and letters with the books that you have. So now I walk around and I end up with a stack of about eight books. Some of them are skinny, some of them are bigger. Um, and I have these eight books and I come back to my home and I see my stack of books and you gotta start somewhere. You gotta start picking out a book. And so as I look at my books, I realize that some of them are kind of like thick historical books about India and there's a lot of words on a page. Some of them are tiny little books with a bunch of meditations, like a meditation on a candle. Meditation on a flower, meditation on your breath. Uh, so I'm like, okay, nice and simple. Uh, okay, because there's a sense of a meditation which is focusing on something already in, in Tom's writings. So then I was like, you know what? That's nice. Some, some new tips about how to do meditation. And then I see this book. It's purple in color. It has an interesting title, um, the, yoga, um, the Dreams of a Yogi. And I open the book and on the first page, there's only two sentences and I turn the next page and there's three sentences and I'm like, awesome, I'll start with this book. And I open the book and the first page says, yoga is to find God. And then I am floored. It just, it, I'm just floored. It's like that sentence is like, unlike anything else, it's like, oh, wow. Yoga is to find God, meaning whoever wrote that is pointing out, you know, you want to believe in God? You don't want to believe in God? I really don't care. But if you want to know God, well, here you go. Which is a very different type of English vocabulary. Because you realize that whoever wrote this new light 
And then he also was like, I don't really care about telling you what the light is. You got to you got to find it. You want to know light? You got to go look at the light. You can't stay in your cave in the darkness and read about light. You got to go outside. And if you're reading in a cave and it's dark, then obviously you made some light for yourself. And so for me, that, that started a journey that was that I couldn't turn back from. And anyone who knows Patanjali's Yoga Sutras will then recognize that there's not a single yoga pose. So this whole yoga, modern yoga of poses, I'm like, okay, you guys are missing something. Missing, sadly, you're also, you're also perpetuating others to continue to miss. If all you're thinking about that the yoga is, can I get to the handstand? And when can I do an arm balance? And what about my headstand? There's nothing wrong with pursuing the yoga poses, but the yoga poses are but a tool to, for something else. And if the yoga poses, which is sadly what I'm seeing as, ooh, the next Instagram picture and who's the cutest girl with the nicest ass and, and how tight are your pants so that I can see your junk and that's why I'm gonna follow you and get like a million followers and how can I get more million followers again, we live in a culture where you do need to pay your rent. And so if you can make your rent by sticking pictures of an Instagram, then, hey, I'll power to you and I will help my yoga students learn that that's also available. So I'm not taking that down. But if that's the only focus, then yes, coming from Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, I've seen the yoga direction go in a very interesting tangent. I've also seen the yoga direction go in one tangent and I've seen mindfulness go in the other tangent where again, the yoga is to find God. The word has nothing to do with poses and it has nothing to do with sitting and doing mindfulness. But yet when you read Patanjali, poses and mindfulness are part of yoga. And so suddenly today I got to always talk to people and then I have to remember, oh, when you hear the word yoga, you think I'm a pretzel and you want me to pretzel myself. And when you hear the word mindfulness, you want me to sit down and somehow be like a stoic, um, I don't know what, like statue. And those are two separate. And it's okay in terms of my communication in modern times, but we'll come to that in a second. Let's step back for a moment and I'll, I'll let you jump in. So I'm ending up with Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and it's like, wow, it's a revelation because I'm studying psychology in college. And the first 10 sentences, we'll just take the first 10 sentences. Not only are they spiritual without being religious, they're also psychological, meaning they explain the psychosis of humanity in 10 sentences. And I'm like, why am I studying Freud and constant psychosis Nothing wrong with it, but why is none of my yoga teachers, uh, my professors have any clue about these five elements about why we have psychosis? That we don't know ourselves. And the reason we don't know ourselves is because we are blinded. And the reason we're blinded is because we have these five elements that blind us. And if we get unblinded, then we know who we are. And it's like, wow, that's just so powerful. And that's just, why am I not getting it in psychology? Now, you said something about your experience with religion and growing up. And again, this is 1994. 
and this is North Carolina. And I'm reading, and it, again, it took an hour to read the book of Patanjali. It just, there's only one sentence per page. And there's some commentary, and the person who wrote the commentary was kind of like a reform um, priest. So he had all these other kind of themes of God and such that you might not read with Indian commentators. But not no here, no there. It wasn't hard to read the book. And when I finished the book, it was like, wow, now I got a big portion of where Tom Robbins got his ideas. But I got a whole lot more. And I was like, how come I'm not getting any of this? So now I'm back in school. And I'm going around and I'm trying to talk to people. I'm like, wow, wow. And everyone thinks I'm, I'm weird because I do. What are you talking about this yoga? And what are you talking about this knowing yourself? And what, what do you mean? And oh, you're weird. And I'm like, you know, and I realized that the conversation isn't going in the direction that I was hoping, meaning I would think that other people would be just as excited to hear about this. And so I realized, you know what, that's going to be my little home passion. And, and as I see yoga begin to develop, I realized that many people have this image that yoga is from India. And yes, pre-Patanjali, there's a lot of gods and goddesses and there's a reason for them. But if that's where your idea of yoga came and that's all you're going to see, then you're going to see gods and goddesses and all these types of prayers and chanting, which sadly is what America has perceived from the 1960s. So when I finish Patanjali and try to talk to people, Patanjali only gives you two tools, real tools, which is chant om or focus on the breath. The eight limbs is not a tool, it's a limb, it's steps. But these two tools are available. So I remember a few days later, I'm sitting in my room in my house and living with my parents in the basement. It's vacation. And I'm sitting and I'm trying to focus. And I knew that doing the OM would be weird. So I'm just sitting and breathing, you know. And I'm realizing that what Patanjali says, the way to find God is to quiet your thoughts, to stop your thoughts. The way to realize. And then that was the first time where I'm like, wow. I always realized I have thoughts because, you know, you're in bed and you got these thoughts and you got these dreams and you got all this stuff and it goes in and out. And so you have this. But I never realized the idea that you could stop your thoughts. And so I'm sitting there and I'm focusing on my breath and I'm realizing that, oh, thoughts and thoughts and thoughts. And I'm like, wow, that's hard. Because the way to find God, yoga is to find God. Yoga is to quiet, is to stop the thoughts. Then you'll know God or then you'll know who you are. So when you start focusing and you realize, oh, but my thoughts are still there. <laughs> <laughs> No, it wouldn't be until many years later, about when I'm 26, when I read a Zen master's comment to a student, that it's not about stopping the thoughts. And then I realized that the English translation is limited. It's not about stopping the thoughts, but rather when the thought happens, why were you thinking the thought? Which after six years or seven years at this point of doing yoga, which is focusing your mind, it hit home immediately because it was like, yes, when you focus on your breath, thoughts come, they come, but your job is to inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. <laughs> oh, you were thinking and you were realizing you're thinking like, oh, I'm so great. I'm working with my breathing. But your inhale and exhale during the time that you were thinking about how great you are, you totally missed out on <laughs> 
So you got to come back to the inhale exhale. Who cares about your greatness of, of focus because you totally lost your focus. But that's not for many years later about we're having this daily practice of focusing on quieting the mind. Then I realize it's not about stopping thoughts anymore. It's about staying with the concentration on the object that you chose to concentrate upon. Krishna Das, those of you familiar with him, has a very beautiful way of pointing out that a yoga pose is just a trick, especially the harder the yoga pose, it tricks you because if you want to stand on your head, if you start thinking about how great I am looking, standing on my head, well, you're going to fall because so it's a trick to keep your mind focused. And the focus was to create a result that isn't, you can't think about the result. It's, in, it's, it's, it's kind of a quality. Like when you're focused, there's a certain quality that comes out of you. That's why Michael Jackson, regardless of sadly the human person that he was and the, the sadness of the fact that he failed in many ways as a human being. But when he was on stage, when he was focused on stage, there is no other words to describe that moment beside divine, godly. And it's true when you watch him on a TV. It's true when you listen to him. And that's why we, we, we revere these days, meaning we pay a tremendous amount of money to people who have this kind of focus, which is athletes, artists. And we just pay for that experience of their focusness because most of them are sadly horrible, pierced people on the day-to-day -day life, meaning like, like, meaning, yeah, you wanna tell me that you wanna give your kid to Michael Jordan to kind of watch over? I mean, I like Michael Jordan, but no offense. <laughs> As a human person on a day-to-day -day spirituality, how he is on the field, how he was on the court, isn't really the way he is on the ground. Hmm. You know, and I'm like, again, that's each and every one of us to be able to take the focusness and apply it to the rest of our lives. But that's yoga, in my opinion. That so that's the background, that's my spill. I know I run on different tangents, but. Oh, that's beautiful, Gabe. You have so many unique perspectives all wrapped into one. And um, I'd like to, I guess, maybe transition to so you studied in India and you've since learned you have a depth of knowledge, mythology, history, yoga, philosophy, and also the postures um, from Ashtanga Yoga. Um, I know you're a practitioner and um, one of the ones that inspired me to practice Ashtanga. So knowing, knowing and having experienced the things that you know, how do you feel about the general atmosphere of yoga in the West, like how it's portrayed in the media? Um, the inequalities exist from a racial and socioeconomic standpoint, um, even up to you know, discriminatory um, actions on many of our parts that I feel that many are unaware of, um, and many are also consciously unaware of. Um, so part of what I would like to do here is maybe discuss some of those things so we can raise awareness of of some issues that are existing in our culture and maybe work towards um, rectifying them as, as the Aquarian age dawns upon us. Yeah, not a beautiful 
beautiful part. Um, I, I spilled and kind of went in tangents about my background and the direction of how I came into yoga. You know, so in 94, after I read Patanjali, I just found that his, his philosophical, we'll call him philosophical or scientific awareness on human possibility and what spirituality is was so, super clear. And then they also put the responsibility on each and every one of us. But it also made me want to kind of understand where his background was. And so I, yes, during that first year, I would continue to go to the library and I would find myself reading the Vedas, which is the ancient writings about yoga, the Ramayana, the story about Rama and Hanuman, the Mahabharata, the huge story poem about, the, about Krishna and the families. And so I just found those interesting to me. You know, they were just beautiful stories, like the story of Jesus. Those part was because even as a child, I wanted to read the, the Christian Bible. I wanted to read the Quran. I wanted to read the, I mean, obviously I was already familiar with the Jewish Bible growing up. So I realized that I had this inclination towards philosophical readings. I read Socrates, Plato, like I said, at 10, but continued in my youthfulness. So then that part for me was there. And obviously within, a few, within two or three months, I end up with a book, even though it was a copy on light on yoga by Yangar. I will give him credit, but also call him out, James, James Miller, where his book on yoga is basically not pictures, it's, it's figures, but it's, it's the complete book on yoga. And it's basically a copy of the light on yoga by Yangar. But it's the first time that I see yoga poses. So, um, so I remember that I was like, okay, let's try, especially the sitting. I'm doing sitting a lot at this point. I'm breathing. My mom made fun of me. She walks in, sees me breathing. She starts going om, 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 because like, like I said, the culture in America in the 1960s saw yoga with the Beatles and their guru about in transcendental meditation. And sadly, that left a negative mark on the, on the popular culture. Like my, my black mother, who basically was like, oh, look at all these weird, rich, white kids and sitting in the park and supposedly trying to have peace. And at the time, I believe that it was a great movement, the changing of, but we had Martin Luther King and we had Malcolm X. So it wasn't like, no offense to the Beatles, you guys weren't really doing a whole lot to help change that side for the black man in New York. That's why we had Malcolm X and that's why we had Martin Luther King while you Beatles are sitting around chanting home. Um, so, and so, and let alone that 10 years later, you stopped, you know, you, 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 you had all these hippie ideas, but then now you're 30 in your thirties and you realize you got a kid and you got to make money. And so those ideas of hippiness went out the window. And so for people like my mother, for that side of the culture, this hippie culture that was supposedly about equality and, and um, transformation and changing lives, it was like, look, you guys just kind of jumped on the wagon of Vietnam War and Malcolm X, but you guys didn't really stick with it. You guys didn't really kind of really help change the inner city's lives. No, you got I me. Mean, then that's just a proof in the making in terms of how America did end up throughout the 80s and 90s. Um, so for my mother, if I like the fact that her son is not going to start doing this awkward, weird stuff was a shock. 
and, and she made fun of me. And I realized she was making fun of me. So then I had to close myself in the bathrooms and do my breathing there so no one could see me. But now I got a book with poses. So I started doing some poses. I try to sit in a meditation pose like Lotus. And I realized that as a rugby player, there's no way I'm going to sit in this pose. <laughs> and so, so just doing poses was awkward. But then there was sun salutation, which is a meditation on the breathing. And then it was a meditation in motion, which was like, oh, a pose is just a pose. But meditation is the process of focusing the mind to discover who we are. And so then that's why, in a way, I ended up in the Ashtanga direction, let alone that Ashtanga is also the eight limbs, Patanjali. It's a self-practice. You got to really pay attention. Are you not paying attention? Or are you paying attention? When you go to a yoga class, it's very easy to not pay attention. The teacher tells you what to do, so you do, or the teacher's in front of you doing it, so you're just copying them. So then it's just an aerobics class. Not, nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that because the word yoga is there. And so maybe one day the practitioner will want to then learn more regardless of what they're offered from the yoga teacher themselves. And before I came to Thailand, and that's going to address what you were saying, before I moved to Thailand, a man named Geshe Michael Roche is going to be in Phoenix, Arizona. And I would go attend his lecture. Geshe Michael Roche and his partner at the time, and I believe they're still together, has just left living three years in the desert. I've never heard of him. A lot of the people in my community, and I'm a yoga teacher, and doesn't necessarily matter how I ended up being as a yoga teacher, but I'm a yoga teacher, and, I, and I'm with the community that I have. Um, they tell me that, hey, this person is really great, and you should go see him, and I'm like, awesome. I'm, I'm excited that you're telling me, let's go check him out. He just spent three years in silence living in the desert. As I meet him, as I sit in a lecture, I, don't, I mean, it's not like I meet him, but in the lecture, I realized that the man has spent 25 years in Tibet. And just spending 25 years in monastery in Tibet doesn't give you a title Geshe. However, you won't get the title, and a Geshe is a title that's very revered, and it's only presented to people who establish a certain mastery. But it's not just about the mastery, because you can think I'm a master within two years. It also requires 25 years in meditation. So if you do meditations for three years and think I mastered it, yay for me. Well, that's not yet. You got you to you do the 25 years too. <laughs> um, so, right. So then I was like, wow, that's, that's powerful. Thanks for that sharing. But what was more powerful from that sharing was 25 years in the mountains with these other geishas studying meditations in seclusion up there. And then he comes to the West. In the, in the early 1980s and he's coming to California and he's like, wow, all of these things that we in the mountains of Tibet learned that are secret. Because yes, let's be honest, Patanjali isn't accessible. He wasn't trying to be accessible. The teachings of yoga, even the Vedas, they were never trying to create social equality. And in my opinion, Patanjali was the first person that is seeking to change that inequality that he saw existing in his society. The Vedas, as much as they're beautiful, and there isn't an inequality in the Vedas, by the way. The writings isn't. The fact that the Vedas point out that 
when we are born as a human person in this body that we have, there's an innate desire to know who we are, which is the higher connectedness of all. Then that's leading. You know, that's like when, when the poet Rumi writes, every morning we wake up empty and confused and we're wondering where did we come from and what are we supposed to be doing here? And he writes this poem because he knows having experienced a time with a man um, known as Sham of Tabriz, a person who is an embodiment of, the, of God, to put in, a, in that word I already used. Meaning there were human beings that were alive on this earth and walked around as a light. And if you happen to be with them, then you knew that such a light exists. And the fact that in English, we use the word God to describe that light is hurting in the Western side because that word is limited and we have images about it. So we'll keep using the word love or light or energy, meaning it exists. That element of your human life in this body of yours that you will be able to recognize that we are all connected and that there is a sense of love and, and sharing that is existing, it's palpable, you can touch it and when you experience it, then you can give it to others. And a person like Krishna Das, I say his name because he had the fortunate ability to live with a human being that was like that. And in those circles, there is no such thing as inequality. There is no such thing as racism. There is no such thing as um, sexism. You know, that just doesn't exist. But most of us will never meet such a person. We'll say that Jesus was such a person. That's why his influence was there. But the Vedas are pointing out that's our innate desire to get to this place that is in us. That is a baby, you know, children up until the age of three, they don't have that. You know, that, that sense of innocence. The problem is that that sense of innocence and that sense of inclusion is just not thought out. It just is. And the minute we start thinking and recognizing that we have a separate sense of self, then we start losing it until we can capture it again. The Vedas, the ancient writings of yoga that describe the element of, okay, you have a body, you're born into this domain, this human experience, this natural experience, to express that, meaning the divine light that you are is, is, has no other way of looking at itself. How is the sun going to look at the sun? It has a moon, by the way. That's how the sun sees itself. And we in our earth think that, oh, but that's a mirror. They're looking at one another. They're reflecting each other. So we, as a human being, are trying to reflect that light of existence. And it's trying to shine through us. But, and so the Vedas point out that when we're born, some of us have a desire to express that light through leadership. And when we lead, we really feel that we shine our light. Some of us have that desire to serve. We want to serve others, and that's how we express that light. Some of us, we want to talk about this light. That's what makes us be able to express this light. And some of us, we want to protect, we want to be able to kind of hunt, and we want to be able to 
protect. And protection doesn't mean fighting. Protection sometimes means it's raining and I'm going to put a cover over you. So these four elements became um, what we see today in India is the class system, the caste system. The caste system of the Brahmins, which are the leaders or the, the spiritual people that want to talk about the light. And then the leaders, the kings and the queens. And then the fighters, the people who fight. And then the people who serve. The, the, the untouchable, which isn't part of the Vedas, which is the human experience of our human, meaning like, that's us. So what happened from this utopic writings of the Vedas, that, that yes, like if you are serving and that's what you were born to do, then when you serve others, you're going to feel the light that you are and it's going to just make you so happy and you're going to feel so loving. And when you are leading and you lead from that place, then but human beings are human beings and we're selfish and we're self and when we're so self-centered. And so even when the Buddha, so I'm going to use his name, I'm here in Thailand and it's important that I bring his up where the Buddha was born. And when he was born, the, the astrologers told his father, your son will either be the greatest king or the greatest spiritual teacher. And his father, not wanting his child to be a spiritual teacher, made sure to protect the boy from any of life's issues so that he would become a king. Of course, the boy will eventually see suffering and then he will seek his path to understand why is there suffering in this earth. And then he realized that suffering is just part of life. And he went on the path of yoga and meditation and spent years on that path. And then he had a discovery, an epiphany. And Buddha in Thailand is an image of a person, a human being that was like the light. And he was shining and he had a very simple way of like helping people realize. It was like, look, just pay attention. Pay attention and then do things for other people. Serve other people. And that's Buddhism in a nutshell. But it comes from this element of what we just said about the human pitfall of selfish desires of not trying to allow us to live from the truth of heart that we have, let alone that in modern culture, again, you see that a football player makes millions of dollars. Why would you want to listen to yourself that you are actually designed to serve people when serving and working in the restaurant? You ain't going to even pay your bills, let alone in COVID. Who knows if you're ever going to get a job again? So that dilemma of modern life causes Patanjali, in my opinion, saw that in his life, as much as these Vedas had great ideas, as much as all these gods and goddesses, he saw a culture divided. That if you wanted to understand the gods, you had to go pay the Brahmins and they could read it and they would do the service. So that meant that you had a huge section of the population that was, that was just kind of closed off of it. You had these kings and fighters that were oppressing people. And then Patanjali comes along, he's like, you know what? The real point of all that was to concentrate so that you know that you are that light. And you don't need all this caste system, you just need to find that light, which is to quiet the mind. So Patanjali, in my opinion, is the first social revolutionary 
The Buddha became the next social revolutionary because the Patanjali, as much as his writing is beautiful, it was still limited. If you didn't find it, if you didn't read about it, if you didn't find a person to guide you, then it, he wasn't like he was trying to go out into society and share these ideas. But the Buddha came along, and I'll say that he understood Patanjali because the eighth path of the Buddha is very similar to the eighth path of Patanjali. So those of you who want to say that they were independent, it's like there's just too many things that are correlated. And the telephone game shows us that there's correlation. And so let's not, let's not throw the book out the window. So I'll just say that the Buddha was Patanjali in a sense, but unlike Patanjali, the Buddha wanted to share this idea with every person. He went out and talked about it to every person and shared this simple idea of just serve other people. So when I came to this country, the first time I come to this country to study Thai massage, I never expected that I would be so enamored by the Buddha and everything I share is because of the time I spent with my teacher about Thai massage. And I was on my way to India. And I go to India and I meet Patabi Joyce and I, meet a, and I have a chance to experience a variety of things in India. But it was that time with my Thai massage teacher that the first thing he said when I arrived here was, what is yoga? What does a yogi do? And I'm like, what? I came to study Thai massage. What are you talking about? What does a yogi do? My teacher repeats and he says, a yogi sits and a yogi feels. And at the end of that first week that I'm spending learning Thai massage, I realize I know nothing about Thai massage, but the one thing I take is that Thai massage is a way to do yoga and serve someone else. And I'm touched by that so much because yoga is selfish in a sense. You know, I do yoga, it's good for me. But when I do Thai massage, it's good for me and it's good for you. And so then I'm offered a job to teach yoga here. And I move here. And within a month, I find myself, I find it very hard to live in this country. And I would stay the year, but that year, and as much as I now live here, but this is 15 years ago, and yoga just arrived to this country just about six months before. It came in the form of hot yoga. And those of you who don't like hot yoga, tough. Hot yoga made you the yoga that you look at today. If it wasn't for Bikram, we would not have yoga today the way we have it. And Bikram knew that, you know what? Forget the words, forget God. I'm just going to put you in the room and I'm going to make you work hard and I'm going to make you look at yourself. And as much as, again, Bikram failed as a human being, he did not fail in the way that he teaches the class. The rest of his teachers sadly failed. But if you ever take his class and just go to YouTube and take his class on YouTube, and you will be shocked at the fact that this class is so spiritual and he talks about it yet not addressing it in that way. But when you look at yourself and you have to look in the mirror and you have to focus and you have to struggle and you have to just listen, that revelation happens. And so, but he realized that the yoga at the time was fufu. Sit down, nah, just do om or just breathe and move a little bit but it's not going to heal you. He had a shattered knee. You think that just sitting around and moving a little bit and doing circles with your body and then doing circles with your head and then doing weird yoga poses here and there is going to heal his knee. And those of you who have a bad knee, you think that's healing your knee? 
compared to just simple 26 poses that not only healed his knee, healed a tremendous amount of other people. So he knew that yoga can be a tool to heal. And if you're healed, if you're healthy, then you can feel that happiness. So he started a whole new trend in yoga, which then put on the map the fact that we have yoga the way we have it today. And it's extremely, you can extremely understand that path in Thailand. Because in 2013, in 2005, there is no yoga here. Thai yoga goes to Hong Kong. Within a month, it's the biggest, most successful financial class ever. Pure yoga opens a studio, and within a month, there's 100 people in the room. A lady sees that, brings it to Thailand. Within, a, within three months, she has five studios in Bangkok. But now she needs teachers. So I'm in India, and someone's like, hey, do you know how to teach Bikram? And I'm like, I teach yoga. Of course, I know the Bikram practice. Of course, I know the Bikram practice. But I teach, so I, I just don't have a Bikram certificate. But if they, <laughs> I teach the class, and they liked how I taught, so I came. But then I realized, it's like, wow, a yoga class, the price of a yoga class in local currency. And again, you have to live here a little bit to understand that. And so I had to move here. And I realized that a yoga class, you can't, if you're, if you're just a regular person, you'll never be able to take a class. The price of a yoga class is what the average person makes a week. So the yoga that came here, and again, let's be honest, I mean, yoga is about money in some levels, but it was for the upper middle class. And for that year that I worked here and taught, it, it was tough on me because I realized how inequality. And the, one of the things I wanted to come here was to help the yoga studio create a yoga teacher training so that local people could learn to teach yoga so that they could benefit and make that money. And so I helped them build the first yoga teacher training program. But no offense, they, it wasn't like it, that studio or the people from that that took over my element try to then change the lives or make classes that were affordable across the board within that direction. When I open my studio here in Thailand, my classes are as, as cheap as possible. You know, and I'm aware of this, like, yes, like in America, I wouldn't do that. But so that inequality and financial speaks to the inequality that we see in the social and racial dimensions. And until we are able to address the fact that yoga has been produced and presented to our social structure as a financial means, you want to tell me that to study, to be a yoga teacher, which is just to stand, you're no better than an aerobics instructor. And yet you're going to spend $5,000 to get a yoga teacher training and then think that you're the hot bananas and that you're better than a yoga gym, that you're better than a gym teacher. And, oh, I'm not going to teach you the gym. I have to teach you the yoga studio. I'm like, where did that sense of, of there's a word for when you, of empowerment came from, like, why, why are you not humble that if you like yoga and yoga simple and these postures can heal you and there's a movement and I'm teaching you movement and it's going to be good for you. Why didn't we not have that? Why do we look down at aerobics and such 
And you know, to be an aerobics instructor, you can become an aerobics, an aerobic instructor for very cheap. So that side that stuck itself into the yoga world has made the inequality that you were talking about. And the way to address it is to recognize it, to address, and that's why I was animated and was talking about the way I did about the Instagram and the Facebook, the way I talked about it. Nothing wrong with it, but let's, let's put it out there. Let's make sure that we recognize it. And let's yoga teachers, those of you who say that you're a yoga teacher, Stop trying to think of yoga as just the poses and the things. Read Patanjali. Spend the time reading the Upanishads. Spend the time listening to these other teachers that came before you that spent time with real enlightened human beings like Krishna Das, who's still alive, or Ram Das. And let's not separate that those kids are chanters and their mindfulness and Thich Han is mindfulness and that's, and again, even mindfulness is not like a corporate environment and mindfulness is for like the rich people over in the Silicon Valley, as opposed to mindfulness is just yoga and yoga poses is just yoga and they're both the same. So let's all come down to earth, please. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Gabe. Um, we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up. I really uh, enjoyed hearing more about your story and all your perspectives and um, you have some very, very powerful things to say. So um, you can find Gabe on Instagram at Gabe Yoga. Gabe so underscore yoga. So even I'm there or on Facebook, you know, I gotta play the social game. <laughs> and he does some online trainings. He's responsible for the Bikyasa popularity here in Las Cruces. He's helped Indigo Yoga. Um, um, foster quite a few amazing teachers over the years so, and done some training. So hopefully post-COVID we'll be able to see you in person again, Gabe. But until then... Um, I'm so grateful you had me on. Hopefully it served the listeners. Um, again, we're trying to kind of change social ideas. And so hopefully by going in that direction help to trigger people's like, perspective and thinking on the way they act around in their society and the way they treat others in the world around them. And that's the way we change the world. As Gandhi said, if you want to change the world, start with changing yourself. Uh, thank you, Gabe. And um, be well, Satnam. We'll talk to you soon. Um, namaste, everyone. <laughs>